We're going to go like lightning today. We have, we're going to cover the rest of the Old Testament in one session and finish up with David. Uh, and uh, uh, as we begin, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer together and ask God to bless our time. Father, we come before you today and we stand amazed at the scripture that you've put into our hands. And Lord, we pray that you will give us a heart uh, to, to know that, to love it, to understand it, to read it. Uh, Lord, there are a thousand distractions around us that seem more interesting and more compelling. But we pray, Lord, that you would give us a heart for your word, that we would uh, love it, that we would live in it, that we would integrate it into our lives. And so we pray today that as we uh, look at uh, these final things of David and then uh, look at one of the darkest chapters uh, in uh, the history of Israel. Uh, and Lord, help us to appreciate again uh, the wonder of the second David appearing and accomplishing what everyone else failed to accomplish. So we just ask, Lord, that you would give us a greater appreciation for uh, the storyline of the Bible and and how you have directed this most amazing drama uh, that at the very center of it is your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, we pray that we will never uh, be far from uh, recognizing how Christ fits, in, fits into these pictures. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. amen. I wanna do a couple of things just in a quick preliminary way We've been walking through the covenants uh, and uh, recognizing the storyline. The storyline, in fact, uh, Aristotle called it mythos, not myths, but mythos is kind of the storyline, following what's happening. And so uh, we live our life that way. We tell our, you meet somebody and they tell you their story. I was born so-and-so, grew up, went to this school, married so-and-so, and, you know, we kind of tell them our story. That's what the Bible is. It's not a systematic theology though there's systematic theology embedded in it, but it really is a story. So that's what we're trying to understand, the storyline. So God created this world as a stage in which he is going to uh, display and to show his love, his grace, his mercy. So he created people, and he created Adam and Eve, and he was developed a relationship with them. It was a relational thing that's a covenant relationship. You know, it, God's not like the, the gods of the Roman and the Greek pantheons that they could fly off the handle. You never knew what they were going to do. But God established a relationship that's covenantal. You knew exactly what to expect from God. He told you ahead of time. And so we have the Adamic covenant where God puts Adam and Eve as the king and queen of creation and they fail. They take the fruit, and so that moves to a second covenant. What's the second covenant that God made? I'm sorry? Uh, that's the third. Yeah, we have Noah. And so Noah steps in. The very promises that God gave to uh, Adam, he repeated to Noah to be fruitful and multiply. And it's very interesting with Noah, he's making the covenant not just with Noah, but with all of creation. Well, and then we came to the Tower of Babel, you know, one of the darkest times, and it looks like there's no hope. And then we come to what's the next covenant? To Abraham. You know, and Abraham, uh, the Abrahamic covenant is the center of everything. That's why, again, I continue to quote the verse from Matthew 1 
uh, 1.1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so uh, God makes this promise to Abraham of a land, a seed, and a blessing. And then 430 years later, he makes another covenant. With who? With Moses. And we have the Mosaic Covenant. And that essentially is God now taking uh, uh, Israel that have been in Egypt for 430 years. That was kind of like an incubator so they could grow and become a nation. And now the Mosaic Covenant is essentially moving them into the place, into the promised land. Remember with Abraham, it promised a land, a seed, and a blessing. Okay, and so that is accomplished. So uh, Moses doesn't displace the Abrahamic covenant. It's placed alongside of it. And, and the Mosaic covenant has a beginning and end. You look at Galatians. It started here. It ended here. And, and so in, as that's developing, we come to the Davidic covenant. And 2 Samuel 7, if you want to turn in your Bible there, we're going to read through parts of this. This is, I can't tell you how much I love this chapter. You know, I could, you know, I could camp out here. We could spend the rest of the time. But we've already looked at it, but we want to look at it again. While you're turning there, though, I want to, I want to show you something that has been invaluable to me. Part of, part of the problem that people have is they really don't know the history and the timeline of the Bible. When I was in Bible college in 1966, I bought these things. I've had them ever since. And it's a, it's a great resource. It's a timeline that shows you, you know, here is uh, uh, Saul and David and Solomon and the divided kingdom. And it has a, a, a kind of a basic date up here. Those dates aren't exactly precise, but it gives you a clear understanding. Now, one of the things that helps you is... Uh, you'll see the, the double line here again. I know I wish I was trying to figure out a way I could make this big enough that everyone could see it. It shows where the kingdom divides, and then it also shows Egypt and Babylon and Assyria and Media Persia and all the rest of them. Then it also puts in where the prophets fit in. Where's Elisha? Where's Elijah? Where who's Isaiah prophesying to? And let me tell you something. If you want to understand the storyline of the Bible, there are two things you gotta get. You've got to get something like this that gives you chronology, and you've got to get a, uh, uh, a, a set of maps that show you where is Egypt, where is Assyria, where is uh, 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 Babylon, and the rest of that, and it will help you. And again, most of us aren't historians. I'm not a historian. You know, so I can tell you that's why I have this. I don't remember all this stuff, so I go back and I look at it and say, oh, yeah. And uh, you can even see in many places I've written my own little notes in there to remind me, okay, here's what was happening there. It would be absolutely invaluable for you. You can't have mine, sorry. Uh, but you can find something like this. It will really, really help you be able to follow the flow of all of this. And uh, I have taped them and done all kinds of things to preserve them. And so uh, I have two things, actually three things. I, I was helping uh, uh, Rodney and I were doing some wiring in the mission house, 
and I have my hammer that I built my first house with in uh, 1975, I think, and uh, he left it upstairs. He, I loaned it to him, and I said, uh, where's my hammer? I can't go on without my hammer, you know, so that's, that's one of the things that I can't live without. The other are my charts here, you know, like this. You know, I, I've had them for a long time, and I couldn't live without them. They sit, they, they are right on the top of my desk. I can't tell you how many times I pull them down, especially when you're going through, everyone's doing your Bible reading, right? Going through the scripture, and you get through Leviticus, you struggle through Leviticus, you know, then you get to Numbers, you get some exciting stories, and then you get to Kings, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, and you throw up your hands and you're lost. Well, this will help you kind of stay the course. So we, we're going to look at that. But 2 Samuel 7, you remember in 2 Samuel 7, uh, they are in the land, uh, and David says, I want to build a temple. What have they had all along? They've had the tabernacle. It's a tent that they move from place to place. So David now is established, he has his own palace, and he thinks it's not right that he's got a house and God's homeless. So he tells Nathan, I'm going to build a house, I'm going to build a temple. And that really always was God's plan, to have a temple. And uh, Nathan says, go for it. And then that night, God comes to Nathan and says, nah, you know, I don't need a house. If I ever said, build me a house? And he said, you go tell David, I'm going to build a house for you. Now, David's talking about a physical structure that you could see, but God's talking about what? A kingdom, a lineage. He's going to build a line of people. In fact, I looked this morning, if you go to, to the book of Luke, Luke 1, 2, and 3, the nativity, David appears over and over again, four or five times at least in those first couple of chapters, and you see how important that is. And so God says, I'm going to build you a house. And after he gives that promise, then David responds to this in prayer. This is what we want to look at in verse 18. King David went and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you've brought me thus far? And as if there were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you've also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? Now we're going to come back to that in a minute. That's a critical phrase. And then David says, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you've done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There was no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we've heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own. Critical statement. Israel is God's very own, a treasure, a special possession. The men will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. Now that's an important phrase. It's going to be established. O Lord God Almighty, 
You have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O sovereign Lord, your God, your words are trustworthy. You've given this good promise to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O sovereign Lord, have spoken And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Again, we could spend a month here. There's so much there. But I want to bring it into a a, a narrower focus. David, is. this is his praise and worship. His, His heart is just erupting in praise. He can't believe what God has promised to him. It's an amazing thing. And, and David's request now is that God is going to confirm the words, that he's going to do what he promised. And again, that's what covenant making is all about. It's a promise that's formalized with God's own word. Because he couldn't swear by anyone greater, he swore by himself. So God's character is on the line. But David says, now don't forget, we're like that, aren't we? You know, even though we know God's not going to forget, we sometimes want to remind him. And, and in this, you see David expressing his trust in God. He trusts God. He believes that what God said is actually going to come about. And then he asks for God's blessing on his house. I love that. He promises it. And then he prays, Lord, will you bless this house uh, as you have promised? Well, in 2 Samuel 19, we have that phrase, is this a usual way of dealing with men? Uh, the King James says, the manner of men. Uh, the uh, uh, ESV calls it instruction. And so the question is, and I ask you to kind of think about this, is this God's work or is this man's work? Is this the mercy that God's going to show to David Or is this the obedience that David is going to render as the one who is the leader of the covenant people? So I've always read that as God's blessing to David. These are the sure mercies of David. You pick this up in uh, in, uh, Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, uh, where he talks about uh, you're going to rebuild David's fallen tent uh, taken from uh, the passage in Joel, or no, passage in Amos, uh, and uh, uh, in, in chapter 13, he talks about the sure mercies of David. He picks that up. Isaiah 55 fits into this, where you have that same promise. So they're all connected together. So what do you think? Is this a, something God's going to do for David? Or is this something that David is going to do to honor the responsibilities that he has? What do you yes. think? Okay, yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Any thoughts there? I know you're afraid to say anything because you're going to be say he's going to surprise us and going to embarrass us. No, I'm still struggling with this. I came across this some years ago, and I really think it's right. So I want to kind of run this by you. Go to Psalm 89 for just a moment. Psalm 89 is a, a great psalm. It it really gives the history. Uh, it's kind of a a, a short. Uh, a summary of the storyline of the Bible. 
Psalm 89 begins, I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth will I make known your faithfulness through all generations. I will declare your love. Uh, I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you established your faithfulness in the heavens. That's who God is. Now listen to what it says. You have said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David my servant. Okay, here he's talking about the Davidic covenant. Actually, if you look carefully, 2 Samuel 7 never calls it a covenant. But it's the other passages that go back and refer to it that way. And then if you go down a little bit later in the passage, uh, go down to uh, verse 30. Uh, no, wait a minute. Let me, uh, uh, let me go a couple of verses above that. Uh, uh, Let's go, I can't read the verse numbers here. 26. Uh, he will call out to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. I'll also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant from he, with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. Now that's the promise to David. If his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my covenant, I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging. Now, one of the things you see is you go through Deuteronomy. You know, you go through, uh, what is it, Leviticus 29, 19? I can't remember the passage where it sets out the blessings and the curses. Okay, God has a covenant. You do what he says, he's going to bless that. You don't do what it says, he is going to honor the judgment that's going to come. And what he sets out here, oh, I keep forgetting to pull this up, okay? Uh, you have, uh, uh, there's going to be failure along the way. You remember when uh, Moses was transitioning to Joshua, he said, okay. You know, the generations come, you're not going to follow this, you're going to get in a mess, and then God's going to judge you. And that recurs again and again. We saw that in Joshua, we saw it in Judges, you're going to see it as we go through the kings, failure after failure after failure after failure. And so, but there's a responsibility that the king has to keep the covenant to lead the congregation in that direction. And so this text says, if his line fails, I'm going to bring punishment and judgment. You'll see that as we go through uh, the rest of the lesson today, if we get that far. Uh, we're going to try to. Uh, but notice the second thing. Uh, 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 in verse 30, what is it, 33? But I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. Okay, what's this thing? What's the hope of this thing? We're going to have a faithful uh, uh, Abraham, a faithful Moses, a faithful David. No. No, we, we see failure, 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 failure. And, you know, I could ask some of you to stand up and express how you kind of fit that same pattern. Let's stop pretending we're okay. We're not okay. We're all a mess. You know, sin has eaten our heart, and we're struggling to honor God. So as we read through this, it's not like, oh, I can't believe they did that. Of course. 
You know, that's what sin's done. That's why we're waiting for a new heaven, a new earth. Well, we don't have to go through this anymore. Okay, but what he says, I will not take my love from him. Jeremiah 31, I've loved you with a temporary, uh, conditional kind of love. I've loved you with an everlasting love. And so behind all the failures, remember in Judges, failure, failure, failure. God sends all these various uh, uh, people against them, and, and then they cry out to God, and he sends a deliverer. What's behind it? It's the faithfulness of God. And so he says, I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Here's the amazing thing. God is not dependent on our cooperation to get the job done. He's going to do it because he's God. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness I will not lie. Can you think of any other stronger way to say that? I will not lie to David that his line will continue forever and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. If you read the whole chapter, it goes on to say, but yet... We're in a mess right now. Where are all these promises? But we can't look at that. We've got we to press forward. Isaiah 55. Turn there for just a moment. Everyone loves Isaiah 53. Uh, all we like sheep have gone astray. One of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament that point to the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, if you talk to any contemporary Jews, they're clueless about Isaiah 53. You know, we tend to think, well, they're going to study that. No, they don't. They ignore that. They don't want to look at that. I've had some experience with that. And then we come to chapter 54. Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song. Shout for joy, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. That's what Paul picks up in Galatians uh, chapter 4, chapter 5. And you have, again, the promise of what God's going to do. The, the barren woman is going to have more children than the one who has a husband. God's going to do something amazing. Then when he comes to chapter 55, we love 55 because as the heavens are higher than the, uh, uh, the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. Uh, great section. God's going to accomplish what he says. But look at, let's read the first couple of verses. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come by and eat. I'm glad for that. You know, you don't have to be part of the upper echelon here to get to be part of this group, okay? Uh, if you have no money, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me, hear me, that your soul may live... I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. Okay, that's the same phrase that comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And when uh, uh, you uh, uh, look at uh, the statement that he's making, we have to ask the question, is David the subject of this or the object of this? Uh, 
Is it David's hesed? You know, you're, you, you've heard the loving kindness of God. That's the word hesed. Now, if you're a good Jew, you don't say hesed. That's really bad. You know, it's, you got to get it down here. It's hesed. Okay, and so the hesed is this covenant faithfulness to God. That's who God is, and that's what he shows. Well, is this David's faithfulness toward God, because he's going to keep the covenants, or is this God's hesed toward David? And I told you before, I've always seen that as the second one. But some years ago, I came across this, and I became absolutely convinced that when he talks about rebuilding David's fallen tent, uh, uh, Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, is so important in many ways in, in making the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, and they're wrestling with that. And rebuilding David's fallen tent, is that rebuilding the temple? No, it's about the line. You know, it's about the seed that he's talking about. And he's going to do that not by rebuilding the temple. He's going to do that by bringing a new David who's going to carry out and, and finish this stuff. And so in Acts 13, uh, he talks about the sure blessings promised to David. And again, that might be better understood, not just the promises to David, but the obligation that David had uh, to keep the covenant that God set out. And so when you put those together, the hesed of David is the kindness, I think, that's performed by David. The task that he has to honor the covenant the king was to lead the entire nation in honoring and following God. And so he has that obligation. And when he does that, and when his son does that, the blessing is going to come. But when they fail, God's judgment is going to come. But he's not going to keep his, uh, destroy his covenant. So as you go through the kings, you think, man, this is the end of it. They're going to get wiped out. No, God raises up somebody, whether it's Josiah, you know, that's hidden away, or uh, whatever it is. The, the storyline is going to continue. The faithful, obedient acts of the covenant king, I'm convinced, is what's in view. But I want to suggest something that I think he's talking not about King David of the Old Testament. I think he's talking about the king of David's line, Jesus Christ. And David never fulfilled all of those obligations. Go back and read the account. David was pitiful. He was a man after God's own heart, but, you know, uh, just go back and look at the accounts. Read through the text, and you see he was a mess too. But there's one coming. There is a King David who's going to do it, who's going to finish the task, who isn't going to fail, who's going to uh, keep the covenant and do it in a way that we're going to stand back and say, praise God for that. That is what we have. The Davidic covenant is really, and, and, and this thing moving, it's pointing forward to the king. You remember what uh, uh, the angel said to uh, uh, Mary? You know, you're going to have a son. He's going to sit on David's throne. You know, and as I said, in, in Luke 1 and Luke 2, it appears again and again. And I want you to get this picture. 
even if we understand this as the blessings that God's going to give to David, that's not wrong. That's not wrong. At the same time, I think he intends us to see something more and to point beyond David to the one that David was pointing toward, which is Jesus Christ. I love what it says in 2 Corinthians. All the promises of God are yea and amen. I still like the King James part of that. The, the yea and amen in Jesus Christ. It, it's what it's all about. You know, when he was on the road to uh, Emmaus with the disciples and they were talking about those things, uh, you remember he said, let me tell you, all of these things are pointing to me. It's about me. Now, if, we, if I did that, said, okay, I, I want to tell you all about me for the next 12 weeks. I'm going to tell you about me. Our class would be empty in about, I don't know, 15 minutes. A few of you might stay a half an hour. I'm not that interesting, okay? You're going to get bored with that. But when Jesus Christ says, it's about me, then we begin to say, well, how is this about Christ? How does this fit together? And that's why, again, the Old Testament is not something to be afraid of and stay away from because it's a little complicated with the history and the places and so forth. I can't tell you uh, how God has blessed my heart in the time that you know, I've, I've worked through these passages of Scripture. And, and I'm glad we're doing this class. If none of you get anything out of it, it's been worth it just for me to go back and look at these things and say, you know what, that's better than I remembered. You know, each time I go back, it becomes better, it becomes richer, and you're going to see this is about Christ. So let's put the Davidic covenant in context, okay? The relationship to the Mosaic covenant is now the king would represent social justice. We hear a lot about social justice today, but it's not anything like the social justice we're talking about with a covenant made with David that's confirmed and established with a new covenant in Jesus Christ. The king becomes an important part of that. That was God's plan from the beginning. Kings would come out of Abraham and Jacob and, and Isaac and Jacob. But the king would also serve as a priestly role. You know, he's not just on the uh, political side, but this king is going to be priestly. And again, uh, we're going to see a couple of priests along the way, I mean, a couple of kings that tried to take the area of the priesthood and got leprosy and other problems that developed. But it's pointing forward to one who's not only going to be the king, but going to be the great high priest. But they're going to be combined together. And it's giving us a hint of that. The king would also represent the nation of Israel as a whole. The uh, Isaiah 40 through 48 and on a little bit, the great uh, servant passages of Isaiah. The servant is the one who embodies Israel. Now here's the good news. I've said to you, those people were a mess, were a mess. The good news is Jesus Christ, in a sense, collectively gathered them all in his arms, and what he did, he did for them, and he did for us. So in spite of our failures, in spite of our, our sin, in spite of the, the hardness of heart and the lust and the fear and the pride and all the rest of it, Jesus puts his arms around us 
And he does what we could never do. So our confidence is not what we've accomplished. Look at me. I've read the Bible through, you know, 1,215 times. Well, that might impress some people. It's not going to impress God. He knows what we're like. And that's why the gospel is embedded in this. And if you miss that, you're going to miss some of the greatest blessings in, uh, in seeing what God is doing. So how do we relate it to the Abrahamic, okay? The mosaic is there. Now David is the one that establishes the kingship, takes on the role of being the leader of the people. How does it go back to Abraham? One of the important things is when you look at a covenant, you don't just look at that covenant, you look at how did it connect and where is it going? So we, we look back at mosaic, now we're going to look back at Abrahamic, and then we're going to look ahead and see where it's going. The king is going to bring rest. He's going to bring rest. That was one of the promises, remember, that, that was made to David. I'm going to give you rest from all the stuff that's around. And David's, uh, when he was king, that's often called the golden years because of that. The king will bring blessing, now listen, to the nations. Israel was not just to receive God's blessing. They were to channel God's blessing. And so the king is going to bring blessing to the nations. Is that what David did? Well, not always very well. But the real King David did it perfectly. You see that? And so the gospel goes out. Throughout the Old Testament, we have that again and again. Isaiah, Psalms, where it talks about the nations, the Philistines are going to come and be part of this. So the king is going to bring blessing. The king is going to bring final victory. You know, it's a battle throughout. You know, I had uh, a guy that uh, lived next to us in uh, Chattanooga that was converted while we were there, knew nothing about the Bible. And as we're going through some of this stuff, he says, why did God make this so complicated? Why didn't just at the beginning? Well, because he does it in such a way that's going to show God's glory and God's mercy and God's love. You know, you could have done it quickly. Why do you watch a TV program that goes for an hour with all these different plots and subplots? They could have just said this guy was a good guy, and even though he was slandered, and be done with it, and you save an hour of time. Now, there's something about knowing the story and following along that you become part of that. See, and that's what we've been arguing for. This is not just a story you need to know about. This is a story we're part of. We're players in this. We, we're, we haven't yet got to Act 4 yet. We're going we're gonna to come to that. Uh, but let me, uh, let me close out of this and... Uh, I said we're going to get through this uh, in the next 11 minutes. I'm not sure. Uh, we'll see. Uh, right, let me go back to the top here. Actually, I'm going to pick up right here. The Great Divorce. Okay, from this point on, from David on, one of the reasons I think people have problems reading through Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles it's pretty discouraging, isn't it? You know, when you see this one and, you know, I mean, you can't begin to, 
to, to process all the things that are going on. So I've called it the great divorce. God says, okay, I, I'm going to bless you if you're faithful to me. But if not, I'm going to get rid of you. And that's exactly what we see happening here. And thankfully, it's kind of like Hosea. You know, he married a wife of adulteries, and you know she became a prostitute, and he went and bought her back out of the slave uh, block and said, now you're going to remain faithful to me. And what we actually have in the Old Testament is a divorce that God says, I've had enough, and he's going to get rid of them. So here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the golden years, David and Solomon, and everything in terms of the nation uh, was wonderful, especially under Solomon. Uh, wealth and, and uh, freedom and uh, all the nations around them were supportive of them. Uh, and then after Solomon's death, the kingdom is divided. I held this up before, and this is the line of Saul and David and Solomon. And then the kingdom is divided. We're going to talk about that. Then Israel and Judah get divorced at different times, okay? And it's important, I'm going to talk for a minute about the names, the terminology, because it's part of the problem is Israel doesn't always mean the 12 tribes. Israel means the 10 tribes north, and Judah is in the south, so we'll look at that. And then the return from exile. Uh, uh, any of you seen the uh, plaque on somebody's wall uh, I, know the pro I know the plans I have for you, plans to bless you, and so forth. That's taken from Jeremiah, where Jeremiah says, okay, you're going into 70 years of captivity, then I know the plans I'm going to... And we kind of skip over that part, but wait a minute, that's a 70 years. Now, why did they go into captivity for 70 years? Anybody remember? Yeah, but there was something special. You remember every seven years the land was to have a Sabbath rest? You know, they didn't honor that. And so God says, okay, for all of those Sabbath years that you violated, you're going into captivity for 70 years. Now, you think they would have learned that in the desert. They traveled for 40 years in the desert because they didn't trust God. You know, and, and yet here we are. You know, uh, uh, amazing story. It just, they're going to come back after 70 years, and they're going to actually rebuild the temple. And then there are the 400 silent years. That's where we read about the Maccabean revolt, and uh, if you uh, know anything about uh, 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 the Catholic version of the Bible, it has, what's it called? The Apocrypha. And you can read about the Maccabees. The Apocrypha is not a bad book. You know, the Apocrypha has a lot of good stuff in it. It's just not the Word of God. It's not the Bible. And you can read the history of the Maccabees. We're not going to be able to do that. Uh, but anyhow, we're going, to, we're going to try to press forward with this, and we're obviously going to take this into next week. And, uh, 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 because it's too important, even though this is, there's more detail I struggle to know how much detail to give you, but uh, you've you got to understand some of it. It's going to help you. So the plot, remember, it, it's not David or Abraham or Moses. It's God's storyline. He's the one that's developing it. 
So one of the things is there is a place where God is going to dwell with the people. That's what the tabernacle was. There on the mercy seat, God would dwell. So you just kind of ran in every day and said, hey, God, how you doing? Let's have a, a chat, right? Who went into the Holy of Holies? One person. How often? Once a year. Only after what? He sacrificed for himself. Or otherwise, they actually, I'm told, they tied a rope around his leg. Because if he wasn't right with God, he was a dead man. Think of Nadab and Abihu and some of the others, Uzzah. Uh, and they couldn't go in to get him. Do you want to go in and pull him out? No. You know, and, and, and so it was an awesome thing. And even though God was there, you couldn't get to him. Even in the temple. You know, you had this massive curtain that God was there, but you couldn't get to him. But the point is, God's going to come and dwell with his people. And that points really forward, I'm getting ahead of myself, to when the new heavens and the new earth come. And what is the big deal? The streets of gold? I, I have to tell you this, one of my favorite stories is there was a very wealthy guy that right at the end of his life got con converted. And he went to his pastor. They were kind of in a charismatic church, so this guy got a word from the Lord and other things. You know how that goes. And so he said, I got so much stuff. Do you think I could take any of it with me? And he said, I, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll see if I can get a word from the Lord. And he got a word back and said, okay, you can take one suitcase. So he dies, goes to heaven, he's there at St. Peter's Gate, and Peter says, what do you got? He said, there's no carry-ons here. And he said, no, I got special permission, he checked it out, and he opened it up, and it was bars of solid gold. And Peter said, and you brought pavement? <laughs> Listen, it's not about the streets of gold. It's about God is going to commune with us. And we're going to finally be satisfied, you know, without the taint of conscience, without the not understanding that. God is going to tabernacle with his people. That's what he did in Jesus Christ. That's where this is all going. The promised land. I'm going to give them. The land is throughout scripture and it points forward to a new heaven and a new earth. It's, it's the whole thing. It's going to be remade. You know, uh, 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 you know, people talk, think about, well, we're going to go to heaven, we're going to float on clouds, we're going to play a harp, we're going to have wings. No, that's not the Bible's picture. This earth and everything that's beautiful about it is going to be magnified and greater because everything evil is going to be taken out. But the point is, we're going to be in a land where God is there. God's presence is there. God's people is there. The blessing is there. There's a royal line. You know, as, as you go through this, it's David, and then it's Solomon, and then it's Rehoboam. And I, I can't go through all the chart, Asa and Jehoshaphat and Athali and all the rest of them uh, that are there. You wonder... How is God going to do this? The promise kind of goes underground, doesn't it? You know, and it seems like we're never going to make it. You ever feel like that today? You know, in the world that we live in, God must be on vacation. No, God does things 
you know, in, in, in an underground kind of way. And that's what's happening here. And the plot is developing according to plan. And that plot includes, get this, human failure. God's not surprised by that. You know, it's when Adam and Eve took the fruit, he didn't say, oh, no, I never thought of this. What do I do now? No, it was God's plan from the beginning that he would reverse the ugliness of human failure. And he's going to focus that in Jesus Christ. There's going to be justice. You know, God never treats anyone unfairly. But as C.S. Lewis says, God goes above justice. He does things better than we can imagine. And so there's going to be justice. Where's that justice? Where is God's wrath and his punishment actually going to be poured out? Where? On the cross. There it is. As Jesus hangs between heaven and earth, that's where God's wrath is poured out. Not on him, because he hadn't done anything wrong. But what did it do? The one who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. I tell you, if you understand, if you want to know what God thinks about sin, look at the cross. I do tell you, even his son doesn't get a pass. But God's judgment fell. You remember we were looking at Abraham when he had to sacrifice Isaac and he had his, you know, the knife raised and God stopped his hand. And we say, thank God. But on Calvary, it was the father's hand that brought the judgment against his son in order that we might be justified. Uh, justification and all of that fits into this. Providential preservation. I am absolutely amazed when you go back and read of all the stuff that's happening. How is it that this line continued? I'll tell you why. Because God said, I'm going to do it. And he did it. You know, and he did it in unusual ways. I still remember as a little boy, you know, reading the account of Queen Athaliah. You remember? And she killed all of the children except she missed one, and he was hidden away. And some years later, he comes to the, you know, you think, how did God do this? But he did it. So the plot is developing. So I... Now we're just getting into the lesson. It's time to go. Why don't we cancel church today and we'll just finish? No, wait, don't, don't tell anybody I suggested that. Uh, anyhow, uh, I, I want to just set out the, the golden years. Uh, King David from uh, uh, 1010 to 970. Remember in the Old Testament, B.C., so, you know, the, the higher numbers are earlier, you know, and then it, it gets lower. He's in Hebron for seven years. He's in Jerusalem for 33 years. And then there's King Solomon. Uh, again, when you come to David, Samuel, First and Second Samuel, is all about David. You know? And then you get into King Solomon is going to come to the throne. And then you read about Solomon. You know, he builds this magnificent temple. It really was one of the wonders of, of the ancient world. He builds this temple to the glory of God. Uh, he has a lavish lifestyle. The Queen of Sheba comes and says, I heard reports, but I didn't believe it. 
And she said, the half hasn't even been told me. Uh, silver goblets were nothing in Solomon's day. Everything was gold. And, uh, and he had a harem. You know, 700 concubines, 300 wives. Uh, let's not even go there. You know, I, I don't know how you begin to process that. And, and out of, you know, he had tremendous wisdom, the, the Proverbs of Solomon. You know, he was, God, he asked, didn't ask for long life and the death of his enemies. When God came and said, what can I give you? He said, give me wisdom. And it was great wisdom. And you wonder, what happened with this? Because what happened with all of the concubines and wives, they turned Solomon's heart from God. And he made temples to Chemosh and to, you know, the various gods of the, you know, the wives and the concubines that he had. And Solomon's death is a sad note to me. But he has a son, Rehoboam, uh, that's going to uh, 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 rise up. Uh, uh, but his, he, he was, his life ended in idolatry. He didn't finish well. And I think that's always been one of the concerns that I had. I want to be able to finish well. You know, uh, I don't have a harem and all the concubines and the wives. I have enough trouble with one wife, you know, and staying out of trouble. I can't imagine what it's like to have all of those. Uh, but, you know, there are so many pitfalls, you know, and the, the concern of my heart is that I'm going to finish this well. Uh, the Davidic kingdom, Solomon had a number of adversaries. You can read about them. Uh, actually, I think we probably let's 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 pause here, uh, and uh, uh, because I, I'm I'm rushing more quickly, you're not going to make the connection that I want you to make, uh, and and uh, let's kind of wrap this up with kind of the big picture, and then we'll come back to this, and I think we'll take the the next week to go through this because it really sets up where we're going with the new covenant, with Christ coming. And then our plan is to kind of continue to May 20, I think May 22, another three or four weeks. And if we need to, we can go one final week. And so we'll make that decision as we come. But again, I think what I want to share with you is it's easy to get lost in the technical details of all of this. I can't keep all those details. That's why I keep this thing before me, so I can go back and I can remember. And so I, I don't want to shame you into learning the dates of Solomon and Rehoboam and Athaliah and all the rest of them, but there's something about seeing the flow of that and being able to appreciate and understand how faithful God has been at the times it looks least likely there's going to be success, when it seems like they're going to be overwhelmed, when the Assyrians carry off uh, Israel and then the Babylonians carry off Judah, it seems like the end, and yet they come back and they rebuild the temple and, and the walls, Ezra and Nehemiah. You remember one of them said, this looks so pitiful you know, compared to what it was before. And uh, uh, you, you see at the heart of this, God is doing something that will never be accomplished simply by the people of Israel. There has to be somebody who's going to raise up above them. And that one, God himself is going to have to come down. And he's going to have to accomplish 
what everyone else has failed to accomplish. And so when you look at this, it's not about Isaiah, it's not about uh, Hezekiah, it's not about Josiah, it's about Jesus Christ and how his purposes are going to prevail and ultimately he's going to have to come to finally finish the job. And that's what he did. That's what he did on the cross. He ascended into heaven and he's seated there and the best part is yet to come. So uh, don't give up yet. We're, we're going to get there and we're going to see the new covenant, the, the, then the pouring out of the spirit and then ultimately this new heaven and new earth. But let's, let's be dismissed in prayer this morning. Father, we pray that you would give us a heart to not only understand this, but to love this and to see how your hand wove together this remarkable tapestry that out of disobedience and failure and sin, uh, you have woven this tapestry of grace and mercy and love. And it finds its ultimate uh, uh, picture in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray that as we read through the Old Testament in our Bible reading, we won't just look at this as a dusty history like the history of the Revolutionary War or the Spanish-American War, but we will see this as the storyline of what you're doing to direct things toward that final end where Jesus Christ is going to be paraded in this earth. He's going to come as the God-man. And he's going to do what no one else ever was able to do. And he's going to die and he's going to be raised and he's going to become king of kings and lord of lords. And so even today, we have this hope and this promise. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to live into the future, into the hope that's ours. And realize in spite of all the things that we're disappointed with ourselves, with the people around us, with the world in which we live, we know that this is just a shadow and that the day is coming that you're going to make all things new and we're going to live life fully for the first time. Not because of what we've accomplished, but because what Jesus accomplished in our place. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.